This is an ABC podcast. Oh no, 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 no. That's, oh, that's crypto? Porn? That's a scam. Oh my God, this one is a crypto porn scam. Are you clearing your browser history again, Beverly? Benjamin Law, this is serious. I've lost my blue tick on Twitter. And there are at least a dozen fake Beverly Wangs there now pretending to be me, moi. Wait, wait, you weren't the at Booverly Wong 69 who DM'd me at 3am to transfer $25,000 in one of my kidneys? You know that not all Asian people look alike. That was the wrong person. This Booverly had exactly the same avatar and she didn't scream at me. Well, that was a tell. Stop everything. question I ask myself every week. What the hell is happening? Stop everything. Hello, my name is Booverly Wong and I am your new AI generated co-host of Stop Everything. Booverly, you are AI generated, but you're also my fellow unverified pleb as of this week. Look, there is a lot to process. There's a lot to figure out together. Let's help each other out. We've done a lot of Twitter death watch since Elon Musk took over. What was we it We keep like? declaring Last that October. it's dead and then stomping on its grave, gathering around to laugh at it. <laughs> if it was already dead, I think last week was the week where its corpse was shot into space only to explode like one of... Elon Musk's Like a SpaceX rocket. Exactly. But still trying to find the silver lining of that huge explosion, right? It's mm-hmm, amazing that mm-hmm. it got that far. We can apply that SpaceX conclusion to Twitter. I think it is kind of amazing that we are now in the era of losing the coveted so-called verified blue tick to the point that having a blue tick now, Benjamin Law, is shame and even more embarrassing than being on LinkedIn, do I dare say it? I said it. So previously, where you were verified, that that came with status, right? You were authenticated, you were legitimate. Now people are like, I want to get rid of this thing that exposes me as having paid apparently $8 a month. But get this, in Australia, it's $19 a month. That's on portable devices and 13 Australian dollars. That's more than a streaming service for the month. And what does it get you? You have shocked me. (laughs) It's like you get a temporary edit button. And plus, you need to pay two different fees for two different platforms. It's absolutely wild. So people don't want this to the point where the author, Stephen King, had his blue tick reinstated. And he publicly declared, I did not pay for this. He said, my Twitter account says I've subscribed to Twitter Blue. I haven't. My Twitter account says I've given a phone number. I haven't. Elon Musk tweeted back to Stephen King and said, you're welcome, namaste, prayer hands emoji, because Elon Musk has, I guess, manually gone into some people's accounts and given them back their blue tick for free. Okay, so without consent and without consultation even, not even saying, "Uh, hello, Mr. King, author of many global best-selling books, I would like to make you the personal offer of maintaining your blue tick as a courtesy, you know, to you and your fans, not even asking the question. Isn't that part of what makes it so embarrassing? Like, I'm giving this to you. Thank you. And they're like, no, actually. I don't want your gift. Take your filthy blue tick (laughs) away and don't give it to me. In fact, people are even going to the point where they are figuring out how to get rid of it by changing their username or tweaking things like that. Like Chrissy Teigen did that. Mm. I guess it's like this reversal of, as you mentioned, Ben, not long ago, it's seen as kind of like prestige because the blue tick shows that you're a public figure, you have a public profile, therefore it's important for you to be verified. Whether you liked it or not, it was kind of a certain level of special status on Twitter to show who you were. And now to have like the one thing that was special about that platform now be the total anathema, like nobody wants it, get it away from me, they don't even want it when it's free. The turnaround is wild. It's another level and dimension of cringe. But, you know, as you talk about consent and consultation, you know people who can't consent in terms of getting a blue tick they didn't ask for? Let me just list them. You might see something in common. Chadwick Boseman, US Senator John McCain, Anthony Bourdain, 
Kobe Bryant, the artists formerly known as Prince, they all had their blue ticks reinstated. They can't consent and they definitely can't complain because they are all dead. This is the era of Twitter we have now reached. As much as it's amusing to see Twitter become this, you know, when we talk about the death of Twitter and Twitter being shot out into space, I think what the blue tick represented was, yes, status, but that was a side effect of what it was originally stated for, which is anyone can sign up and have the Twitter account, right? But how do we even know that it's you? This was the one very flawed tool in a very flawed system that gave you an element of trust. And now that that trust hasn't just been eroded, it's completely disappeared, how can you log on to Twitter and understand what you're even looking at anymore. It's a co- very confusing landscape now. Government accounts are replicating like mushrooms. You don't know who's who. I read this scathing Slate article by Alex Kirshner about this new rollout of Twitter Blue and how celebrities were balking and people did not want the blue tick anymore. And this line, which made me laugh, it said, the masses are not balking at paying for Twitter Blue because they're trying to shelter themselves within a crumbling elitist internet order, but because they think Musk is offering an unworthy product and he is also a dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that is the most sophisticated analysis we really need at the end of the day. Uh, Elon Musk, what did you do to Twitter? So we said it was dead. We're now kicking a corpse now, right? We're kicking the corpse of Twitter, which is... uh... But it's not just Twitter either. There have been a really great series of pieces, I think in the New Yorker, in the Atlantic as well, about how Twitter really represented the peak of 2010's Twitter, from 2010 to 2020. What really encapsulated what the internet was about? It was free sharing of information. It was treating the internet as a serious place. And also, I don't think it's a coincidence that BuzzFeed, its news department, was completely demolished last week. And I think it is the end of an era where the internet was playful, where things actually happened online in a way that felt tangible and exciting. And now I think the internet's in a place where it's kind of decentralizing fast. Do you know what I mean? You'd go onto Twitter and you'd have everyone there, whether it was your friends and CNN and the ABC Mm. and your favourite brands and your favourite celebrities. I think everything's dispersing in a way that is new. I feel a little bit nostalgic for it, but I also feel a little bit cleansed, I think. I totally get what you mean. I'm even thinking about how we make this show and oftentimes for that silly opener that we have, it would be like, let's go on Twitter and see what people are saying about this ridiculous exchange that has happened. Now, I find that we do that less and less because it's no longer the central point, for better or for worse, to see, like, what are people saying about a particular phenomenon? So it's happening elsewhere. We just have to be there, like, on TikTok or on Reddit or whatever. But here's a genuine query. What are you doing with the time that you have gained back from not spending time on Twitter? Oh, that is such a good question, Beverly. You know what I'm doing? I'm getting on with my life. (laughs) I'm doing the stuff that I probably should have been doing all along, which is concentrating on work, checking with friends, seeing what my nephew's up to. Like, yes, I'm still distracted by the news. I'm still distracted by alerts. I'm distracted by Instagram. But Twitter was um, a bit of a mental jumble because there are a lot of simultaneous conversations going on at once. And I realized that actually takes a lot of Brain power it was exhausting. Across. It was exhausting. What are you doing with your time away from Twitter now? I'm spending a lot of time playing Spelling Bee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she says. <laughs> Perhaps too honest of an answer, but I also have a new Twitter friend. His name is Bergerman Law. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's married to Boovily Wong, <laughs> and they are really interested in crypto. Beverly, one big presence in Australian culture and comedy died last week, and it was Barry Humphreys. And I think I've been wrestling with a lot of mixed feelings about the news because his comedy was work that I actually genuinely loved. But also there's another conversation about Barry Humphreys that people have been wrestling with and I've been wrestling alongside with them. You know what, Ben? That's so interesting. I'd love you to tell me a little bit more because as a migrant to this country, I can safely say 
that I have probably seen Dame Edna on TV maybe once in my life. I'm going to borrow a term that you often use. I'm ambiently aware mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the work of Barry Humphreys. I'm ambiently aware of Dame Edna with the rhinestone glasses and the glittering yeah. gown and the purple wig. My question is, was Dame Edna a drag queen? Oh, this is a really interesting question because Barry Humphreys has always said that what he does isn't drag. And I actually think he's correct because drag is inherently queer. It comes from the queer community. Barry Humphreys isn't queer. And in fact, in some ways, he's said quite anti-queer statements. And I think Dame Edna comes more from that tradition of almost British panto, where it's actually a very straight man thing to get in a dress and go, ooh, I'm a lady now. Okay. I think that's the tradition from which Humphreys comes from. Sorry to all the Barry Humphreys fans out there, but that doesn't really sound like my cup of tea at all. Yeah. And I think comedy changes, taste change as well. But for a very long time, I mean, Beverly, when you say you're ambiently aware, I'm surprised Dame Edna and Barry Humphreys isn't on the Australian citizenship test almost because, like, for a long time, Dame Edna, Barry Humphreys, Celeste Patterson, the pantheon of characters that Barry Humphreys created, that was Australian comedy. Like, postage stamps, TV, stage shows, hung in art galleries. Barry Humphreys and Dame Edna and all of those other characters were ubiquitous. Okay, that is really helpful to me because I have been noting that a week on... There seems to be no end to the amount of Barry Humphrey's copy generated Mm. by broadsheet newspapers to the point where, you know, this controversy with the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, would they pay tribute to Barry Humphrey's? Would they not? I can see that there's a genuine question. Barry Humphrey's contribution to that festival, especially in its early days, have been reported and noted widely. But there was also the controversy, like you alluded to, of transphobic comments that Barry Humphreys made that led to the comedy festival changing the name of its Barry Award, which was the name for the best comedy show, to now just best comedy show. And I did read that piece by Sammy J. Sammy J is a winner of that award. Sammy J was an admirer of Barry Humphreys' work. Sammy J was also on the board of the Comedy Festival in the year that they changed the name of the award. All of this, I get. Sammy's making a very reasonable point about when you weigh up hurting the feelings of a comedy legend versus having young emerging comics come into this festival and feeling welcome, how would they feel if they were nominated for a Barry? I think, yeah, that's it. So I guess I'm a little bit confused about how and why this has become a bit of a culture war. Hmm. Well, I'm going to do your favourite thing, Beverly, which is hold two simultaneous truths because on one hand... I can look at the comedian that I grew up with, like in my teens, in my 20s, me and my friends, me and my family would go see a Dame Edna show and it was so riotously funny. I still remember the way that Dame Edna would ask an audience member, what's your name, honey? And she'd say Jenny and Dame Edna would say, what do you do, Jenny? Jenny would say, I'm just a housewife. And Dame Edna would hold Jenny's hands and say, don't say just, we don't want to hear about your low (laughs) self-esteem. And I just think like that was the brilliance of that character, being able to elevate people while also simultaneously slamming them down. (laughs) But let's lean into the specifics of what's been said on the record. Barry Humphreys said in The Spectator magazine in 2018 that trans people were mutilated and thought that it's pretty evil when it as in being transgender, is preached to children by crazy teachers. That's quite extreme. And I think when we have these conversations about Barry, like what are we having these conversations about really? It's about a perceived disproportionate response to something that someone has said or done. But like, what is the response? They've renamed a festival award in his name, but the festival is also currently producing a massive tribute in his honour. He's possibly going to get a state funeral. He'll continue to be lauded and celebrated. I think all of those things can coexist. So you're not saying Barry Humphreys cancelled? Well, what I'm saying is Barry Humphreys is being talked about as a human being, someone who is a comic genius who has been incredibly hurtful and bigoted. And I do wonder if people would be saying the same defences of Barry Humphreys if he'd said the same things about a different minority, say gay people. Do you know what I mean? 
Look, Ben, I do know what you mean, the complications of saying hurtful things and then kind of having to account for them. I mean, in this case, we're talking about, I'm just going to move on now to a little update on beef. And remember last week, we talked about the rightful controversy, I think, around cast member David Cho's 2014 podcast comments about rape and rape culture. They're mm. horrible comments. And we were wondering what the creative team behind this hit show, Beef, on Netflix would say. So Lee Sung-jin, the creator, executive producers and co-stars Stephen Yun and Ali Wong. At that time last week, we didn't know because they hadn't said anything. And we were curious, right? Because I won't repeat what David Cho said. It's all in the last week's episode. So you can go and catch up if you didn't catch it then. But there is now a statement from those three creators behind the show. And they have said that David Cho's story was undeniable, hurtful, and extremely disturbing. And we understand why this has been so upsetting and triggering. We're aware David has apologized in the past for making up this horrific story. We've seen him put in the work to get the mental health support he needed over the last decade to better himself and learn from his mistakes. <sighs> that's not going to be enough for some people. It is enough for others. I think that's kind of where it lies because if it's a fabricated story and he has now looked back and seen that it was terrible and he regrets it, that's kind of it, isn't it? Okay, this is a content warning. Well, one of us has a vibrator in our bottoms. Oh, which one of us could it be? Yeah, one of us has a vibrator in our bottom. Oh, do you think that it could be me? Uh, yeah, that song made no sense to me at all. Or did it make too much sense, <laughs> Beverly? <laughs> because it certainly hit a spot in me. Oh, wow. <laughs> Those Arnie Donnafellas and their vibrator song from the comedy trio's recent ABC TV and iView show, Auntie Donna's Coffee Cafe is there for all of us to enjoy. Yeah, they have left their Netflix Beagle House of Fun and are running an ABC-sponsored Melbourne cafe. Sometimes, apparently, with vibrators in their bums. You know, mm. that's going to make some people laugh. And I'm sure it's going to make other people very, very upset that we now have a taxpayer-funded bum vibrator song. Send your complaints to Auntie Donna, not to us. <laughs> We're the messengers only. We have had Auntie Donna on Stop Everything before. Ben, do you remember the origin story of how they got their name? Ooh, wow, this feels like a test. Um, there was an auntie, uh, her name was... Uh, look, clearly I don't. You need to educate me. Okay, well, a very simple story. Obviously, Auntie Donna is taken from the name of a pet crab caught by the father of Auntie Donna member Mark, his dad who lives in Geelong. That is not the answer I was expecting, but sure. <laughs> it's keeping in the spirit of the comedy and who they are. It's okay not to understand what's happening. Just go with it is my advice. We caught up via video call with another two out of three combination of Arnie Donna. This time it was Zachary Ruane and Broden Kelly. Last time we were on, we talked about your Netflix show, Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun. And in that show, the three of you... Mark is not here, but he's here in spirit. The three of you were housemates. Now, in your ABC series, Auntie Donna's Coffee Cafe, you're running a cafe. <laughs> it's an evolution, I suppose. I want to hear more from you about how you went from the share house to the coffee cafe. Why a cafe this time around? What's comedically inspiring about cafes and coffee culture? It's interesting. There's definitely the coffee culture. There's definitely the satire element. But there was also a functional thing. I think we found... One of the issues with a house was that it's really, really, really hard to write an excuse for a complete stranger to walk into your house. And we kept finding every time we'd come up with a funny comedic character or an, or an interesting sort of person, the excuse or the reason that they would be at our door and then walk into our house got really, really challenging. And then we thought about it and we realized that the thing about a cafe is anyone and everyone 
we'll walk through a cafe and it's so much more conducive to a world where anything can happen and anyone can walk in. So that was a big technical element. And then obviously there's just so much comedy in that world, I think. Mm. Anyone who's worked in hospitality may even be triggered by watching the show because there's a lot of stuff in there that feels true to real life and the absurdities of working in that field. Have either of you worked in a cafe before? I can't make coffee, but I did grow up pretty much in a coffee. My parents owned a cafe in East Melbourne called Terrace on Clarendon. And my parents had that for about three or four years. And I think it took like 90 years off both their lives collectively. It was just incredibly (laughs) stressful. There'd be days where I'd wake up and my parents would go, you can have the day off if you come clean dishes. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, great. So like, it's just an immensely high stress place. And so like the writing I had was just really taking memories of that and pairing them with like the nice experiences of being in cafes as a creator, because Most creatives that I know spend a fair amount of time in cafes writing because offices are too expensive. (laughs) Most of my 20s, as I learned to write comedy, was spent in cafes writing and spending between $10 and $20 on nine coffees. There's nothing lovelier than going to a cafe and nothing worse than working at a cafe. (laughs) It has the whole gamut of human experience. You float some wild concepts in this show, like a cafe that's open until 5 p.m. What are your favorite and least favorite aspects of Melbourne's vaunted, storied, mythical cafe culture? It's a great way to get your gripes in. You mentioned the uh, 5 p.m. thing. That's something that frustrates us so much because we do a lot of live performance. We'll often write late. So I'm often wanting a coffee after 3.30 and it's something that's always really been a big gripe for me. But then through the process of writing the episode, I realized why they aren't open past 3.30. So it's one of those amazing things doing this process where I was getting my gripes out, but then also becoming much more empathetic to cafes. Situate the cafe that's in this show in the Arnie Donner cinematic universe for us, like in terms of time and place, because we, we've noticed it's a very impressive it's very spacious, spacious, big, that cafe. It sort of exists within a very particular time period, but also out of time as well. So like where and when? As we've gone on, Zach particularly has been very keen on creating Donner canon or Donner verses. So <laughs> they all exist in the same world. At the moment, the world law is that We live in a house in Los Angeles where that show was filmed, but then we go to work at a trendy Melbourne cafe every day. We change our clothes at work and then we- And I put on like some COVID weight. Somehow every day I put on COVID weight. (laughs) And then sketches that we do, I guess, are other characters in the Donner world. So there's a video we put out where we play real estate agents and I guess that's not us. I guess that's just people who look like us. But then also we do a weekly podcast and- In that, we've started saying, you know, we've come in here to record the podcast and uh, we live in a house together and run a cafe. So even in like real world now, our (laughs) canon is that we run these places. We're always building on that. It's very method. My Dark Tower series is coming. (laughs) We'll look out for that. That's going to SBS. Just as an ABC person talking about an ABC show, I'm really impressed that no ABC executives made you shoot the cafe in the empty cafe space in the ABC downstairs here to save a bit of money. Was that proposed by any executives? The ABC has been really, really supportive. We shot on a soundstage in the Docklands across the, I guess, the walk away from where La Brea, this big NBC show, was shooting and where they're about to start shooting, I think, Metropolis for the next 300 years there. So they've been pretty understanding apart from, this is a visual thing, but like they did make me get this ABC tattoo on my wow. It's real. Yes, we wanted to ask you about that. It's not a visual medium, this podcast, but we just need to let listeners know that you have consensually pulled down part of your undergarment to show us that you have the ABC insignia, the logo, tattooed permanently on your butt cheek. Yeah, early in the process, Ida Buttrose, like, asked for a meeting. She brought us in in Sydney in the top level of Ultimo and sat us down and said, you want this show? And we're like, yeah. She's like, all right, well, this man came out and his name was Bubba. He had no hair and he was covered in tattoos. She said, well, all right, drop him. 
and we had to get the tattoos on our bums. Wow. This is the last thing. Everyone does it. She assured us that Lee sales. In fact, she said, Ben, that you had one. It's in a more private place than I yours. don't have one. I don't know what that means then. <laughs> oh, my God. You heard it here before you heard it in Senate yeah. <laughs> We saw the picture on Instagram, and it's next to a Netflix N, right? Is that right? So that's basically part of your contract negotiations or something to have to tattoo the network logo on your bum? Brayden's now showing his Oh, Netflix he's doing, he's logo. pulling his pants down oh, again. Oh, wow. That's the other cheek. Wow. Are the cheeks at war? <laughs> or is it a co-production? <laughs> I like that one buttock is, is, is uh, tax funded and the other is a representation <laughs> of the modern tech. Yeah, one is tax funded and one is Every, stop everything listening a little bit of your butt right now. Look, Zach, I don't want to put you on the spot, but are you similarly tattooed? I didn't get the Netflix tattoo because my partner said, I don't want to see a Netflix tattoo on your bottom every time you get changed. And I said, that's fair. And then when she saw their Netflix tattoo, she was like, oh, that's not too bad. And she said, I would be fine with you getting an ABC tattoo. So I actually went to the guys and I said, listen, and this is true. I said, I think it's only fair that I get the ABC tattoo because you got the Netflix tattoos. I said, but I think it's funnier if I get neither and you both get both. (laughs) And he was right. Wow, you really played that, Zach. That was a master chess strategy going on there. (laughs) It's rare that I'm speechless, but I think this is the first time I've done an interview where the guest has shown me their butt cheeks that are tattooed. So I I need a minute. it won't be the last, Beverly. No, this is a new year and stuff. I need to take a minute. I want to just play some totally out-of-context Auntie Donna's Coffee Cafe for you all. Where are they going? Not sure, but if I were to hazard a guess, I would say they're on their way to the swampy marshes under the Westgate Bridge, where they will curl up and begin their hibernation process like a lungfish. So that's a little tiny clip from your show. I played it because I live in Melbourne, like you guys, and, you know, I watch a lot of TV and I don't see a lot of references to the Westgate Bridge on anything except maybe a traffic report. It's such a specifically Melbourne thing, and it made me laugh quite a lot. It feels like in Auntie Donna's Coffee Cafe that you are really reveling to a very high degree all of these Australian references and like very Melbourne-specific references. Is that kind of a reaction to doing a global show now you're back home, or is the Westgate Bridge just extremely funny to you? Oh, no, the Westgate's the best. And that shot, it's the ending of episode four, and we went down at like sunrise to literally the swampy marshes under the Westgate Bridge, and it's all kind of Parks Victoria heritage kind of listed dirt. If you haven't seen the episode, we've got big purple gowns on and we burrow our heads because we're real estate agents. We burrow our heads (laughs) into the ground for the hibernation period um, like lungfish. So it was like 6 a.m. and freezing cold and we all had to get in the mud and burrow our heads in. Actually, because of some timing, I didn't have to do it, but everyone else did. It was (laughs) such a shame. We had to bring in our own dirt because the dirt there was heritage dirt or like special dirt. So we brought in like a bunch of topsoil and put it on top of the heritage soil and burrowed our heads in. So it was nice, fresh, clean soil. So that's just a little inside Behind Hollywood the scenes, sort of situation. Yeah. yeah, we love Melbourne. Our first shows we ever did were violently local references. And something we've never really been able to get away from is names and people that only a few people would know about. When you say a real name, it's always funnier than a fake name. If I was to name a character Jimmy Two Hats, it's kind of funny, but it's nowhere near, to me at least, as funny as saying Matthew Gelsomini. <laughs> who is a guy we went to uni with. and <laughs> There's something about a real name that's just so true. Even if you don't know the person, there's something to truth, I think, yeah. for sure. And like in Melbourne, everyone's been over the Westgate. And what we've found when we've built an audience overseas is people don't care if they don't get the exact reference. And I think Australians know that watching all British comedy, all American comedy. Mm. We don't really know all the references, but we get the idea. Like we might not know what a word means, but we know what you're saying. Often we have to adapt our sensibilities to other people and not often do other people have to do it for us. So we thought, you know what, you have to come to us a little bit and experience the Melbourne lifestyle. Fun fact, we still haven't found an international distributor for the show yet. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> too Melbourne. Not even with a Netflix tattoo? Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, a few people are interested, but they want me to get a full um, face tattoo that just says, I love BBC, <laughs> I love Amazon Prime, and I'm still thinking about it, to be honest. I like this. Your bodies have become a passport of all the streamers and broadcasters out there. 
I'm going to look like a NASCAR or V8 supercar soon. <laughs> this series is available on ABC iView at the moment. Is there something liberating about being able to even go harder on the Australian references because you know that you've captured a local audience? Yeah, look, a lot of our fan base is younger than us and we have to explain to them you know, just how special Wednesday night on ABC was because they're all online and to them it's just iView. But we have to explain to them what it means to be in that sort of place. I grew up being home making sure that I was watching that time slot. So to be inside that tradition and to be a part of that kind of lineage means a lot and it's sort of, that was always the goal, you know, that was always what we wanted to do, that was always where we wanted to be. We never thought internationally, you know, we never had that intention. So for our first show to have to have that kind of mindset of how's this going to play in South Africa while we do our South African characters was a very strange (laughs) jump, but also incredibly liberating. I think no one that we worked with on this production, but we've had producers and executives in the past worry about how something would play internationally, worry if something was too niche. And then to be able to do something internationally and put really niche Australian references in that show and have Americans and British people just be entirely okay with those references and see them for what they are, they're just colour and flavour, I think really liberated us. So once we started making this show, we could just go to town, you know. Zach and Brennan, you were talking about being violently local, which I love that expression, <laughs> to be violently local. Two out of three of you are tattooed with ABC. Seems like you have a lot of affection for Auntie, Auntie Donna, Auntie the broadcaster. I guess I'd just like to hear you wax on a little bit about why you wanted to have so many specifically ABC references, you know, Gardening Australia, Rake, iView. (laughs) We don't think about these things as like a creative territory. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The ABC is as Australian as anything else. Like it is actually home and When I look back at my life, it is inherently linked DNA-wise to the ABC, both in comedy and also just not in comedy. So, like, we grew up, McAuliffe Program and Big Girls Blouse, Kath and Kim, the lineage of Australian comedy, Lane Odd Woodley, and even before we were born as well, shows like Arnie Jack, they're part of Australiana, they're part of who we are. When we first started... All we wanted to do was make live shows that were good enough that eventually one day we would get an ABC show. That's all we ever wanted. But just as the world's changed and as the ABC's changed, it just became harder and harder for that kind of to happen. It just felt like it was not going to be our path or our journey. It seems like there haven't been comedies that were sort of for the younger people for a little while. There's plenty of awesome shows that the ABC is continuing to make, but there's not been many that are sort of aimed at the under 30s. And we were so excited when we started talking to the ABC about this because it felt like the people who were making these shows were interested in getting young people to come and watch the ABC in the way that we did when we were younger. So we feel like an obligation to fly that flag. We wanted to make a show that felt like it belonged on the ABC but was also really disrespectful (laughs) to the establishment that was really cheeky and naughty and... We wanted it to upset a few people on news platforms to go, how is this taxpayer's money? We kind of wanted to make something that was in the lineage of that. Uh, And I'm happy to say that we've done that in some respects. You know, I think that as the world has gotten more and more global, you've got something like Netflix, which we've never had before, and, and, and Amazon Prime, where there's just this sense of nothing is for a local audience. Everything is for the entire world. I think that there's been this sort of thought of, all right, everything has to be scrubbed clean of its locality almost. It has to be scrubbed and and it has to be set everywhere and anywhere or, or nowhere. And that's interesting and that's an interesting path to take. But I also think that you also have a much more savvy audience. Young people have grown up in a world that's completely global. They've grown up in a world where they can get online and talk to anyone in the world and learn about their experience. And I think that actually young people are more savvy to hyperlocality than we are, you know, even, or, or, or generations above us. There's this sense because they are so connected to everything, actually they're more okay with something that might fly over their head that they might not get right away. On top of that, they're usually double screening. So if there's a reference they really don't get, like they can just look it up straight away. Like that's the other thing. The way we experience things is so much more 
Just different. Different, and I don't necessarily think going broadly international catch-all is necessarily the right technique in this world. You know, I think we're still figuring it out. You have a lot of cameos in this show, a lot of Australian references again that I think people really like to see. There was one white whale that did elude you. I'm just curious if you can clear this up. Did Koshi turn you down or was it just <laughs> the idea of Koshi that you wanted to invoke? We never asked Koshi, did we? No. We were being a little bit rude to his joke books and um, we just thought better to let him live his life, keep on going, writing his joke books and hopefully he never hears about it. Me and Mark actually got up at sort of 4 a.m., 3.30 a.m. after we'd done a comedy festival gala. So we were up till really late, got three hours sleep, got up really early to do the weather cross on Koshi's show. Which one's his? Is his sunrise? Sunrise, yeah. We did the weather cross and then we did a one-minute version of one of our sketches for the audience to promote our comedy festival show. And then we made a little bit of a joke about his joke book and... I think this less, but Mark really believes there's a clip online of it that we really hurt his feelings when we made a joke. We just thought, oh, it's a cash grab. We'll make a joke. He'll be fine with it. But it looks like his feelings were a little bit hurt. So whilst we are continuing our tradition of joking about his joke book, I hope I never meet the man because I think he'll come for us. (laughs) I'm so glad I asked that question. It's been (laughs) such a great time talking to the two of you. All of Auntie Donna are Mark Samuel Bonanno. Broden Kelly and Zachary Ruane. We've been chatting with Broden and Zach. Their new show is on the ABC, Auntie Donna's Coffee Cafe. All six episodes are on iView now. Thank you so much, guys. It's been great to chat. Thank you. Thank you both for having us. You are now the jury in the matter of Hillgrove versus Morris. When they say jury of your peers, I think that's accurate. I mean, how long does this normally take if you're using this I'm a recognizable public figure. Respectfully, I don't recognize you. Juror number 54. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to be upset if I don't get on the jury. Me? Ready, guys? Here we go. All right, so this is what happened. Allegedly. We got defecation. There's a lady named Jacquees. I'm in it. I'm in it. Try to keep an eye on I want to do the best job that I can. <laughs> I'm what? in it too. I'm in it too. There's defecation. There's a lady named Jacquees. We're ticking the boxes from what you and I want from a comedy, Beverly. That is the trailer for Jury Duty, season one. And it is a comedy like no other. Beverly, I finished watching this last night and my face is still hurting from smiling. I feel like Jack Nicholson in the original Batman film. It's just frozen in this smile. This is how I'm going to describe it. The Truman Show meets The Office meets Mm -hmm. The Rehearsal. Yes. Okay, Okay, all of those elements going on. We talked about The Rehearsal. That was that show by Nathan Fielder where he brought people into these elaborate sets, get them to rehearse real-life conversations with people in real life. And it was kind of dread and anxiety-inducing. This feels like it flips that formula into something joyful. Yeah, I think it gives us a sense of redemption in the goodness of humans. Let's just start with the premise. What it looks like is a documentary reality series about the experience of being on an American jury. Right there should be your flag because jurors are not supposed to talk about the case or be involved (laughs) in any kind of media coverage about a case. So the fact that all of a sudden permission has been given to grant behind-the-scenes access to what it's like to be in a jury should be your flag, right? If you are called for jury duty, that means you are a citizen of the public and you're not necessarily exposed to the inner workings of the law. You may not have any idea. Exactly. So that's the whole point. And when the producers list a Craigslist advertisement saying we want you to be part of a documentary about jury duty, all these people signed up. One person was selected They're the star of the show. But he doesn't know he's the star of the show. He doesn't know. He's the only real person and everyone else is an actor. Right. So we, the audience, know that Ronald Gladden is the only Mm. quote-unquote real person. Everybody around him, from his fellow jurors to the lawyers in the courtroom, to the plaintiff, the defendant, even the bailiffs, the security guards who wand you in, every single other person in the scenario is an actor. 
It's so elaborate. I was thinking, is this what we need TV to do these days? You either have to survive in the wilderness, <laughs> you have to live inside a house of mirrors, Truman Show style. Unless it's that level of unpull-offable TV, are we even interested in reality TV anymore? But are we also saying that what we need from entertainment is a show that essentially gaslights one person at the potential expense of their mental health because everyone is literally on a joke except one person who we're watching. So that was my greatest fear. Is this one person going to be made the butt of the joke? What's the ethical quandary when you put a real person into a totally fictitious scenario. I should also add that there's a Hollywood star in the cast oh as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we need to talk about <laughs> James Marsden. James Marsden, who we know from the X-Men franchise as, as Cyclops. He's been in Westworld and he's been in a lot of other films. He's one of those actors who's so perfect for the role because he comes to jury duty as a heightened version of himself. He's a jerk version of himself, right? Yeah, and he's one of those actors where you know his face but maybe can't place and that's exactly the effect that he has on Ronald Gladden, the real-life person who doesn't know <laughs> what's going on. So can we just talk a little bit about some of the things that I was wondering about? Because I was thinking, yeah. this must be an actor's dream. You're basically in this immersive environment, basically all the time. I'm wondering, how are they not breaking and laughing? Because it is ridiculous, some of the things. The chants, the chair <laughs> pants, I could not. When you've got 11 jurors played by actors, they all have to inhabit such incredibly diverse cross-sections of the American community to the point where some of the characters are so hilariously niche that not only are they doing that on set, some of them are occupying that character round the clock because if you're a fellow juror, you're actually living in a hotel together, you're playing video games with Ronald Gladden as well, you are like maintaining this constantly. And I think it's a delight to see actors maintain such joyful discipline in playing that role. Yeah. I love Bailiff Nikki and oh, how she yes. is the perfect embodiment of a slightly bored, tired, overworked, still doing her job, public servant. Physically, mm. her manner, everything is so perfect and so spot on. But I think obviously the person who makes this show work and it's such a tightrope walk and he does it without realizing he's doing it is Ronald. Himself, yeah. Think about this. Like it's about how he reacts to the situations, right? The reason why it doesn't make us feel so icky is because we are constantly looking in on how is Ronald reacting to this wild scenario? He's not the butt of the joke. He's an observer to the ridiculousness. But mm. how Ronald reacts could make or break him. I also get that in the interest of not being accused of being unethical, the show has got to do its best to give him the best edit possible. But he is continuously and consistently kind and considerate. So many moments he could laugh at a character like Todd with the chance, but he never does that. In fact, every single time he's unfazed mm. to the point where, look, a couple of spoiler alerts, he takes the fall for James Marsden's <laughs> incredibly terrible <laughs> giant turd that, that blocks the toilet <laughs> that blocks the toilet that requires attention <laughs> and here's my theory right this is a show that comes from the producers of the office what i have come to conclude is with ronald those producers have found the real life jim ronald mm. is jim in real life they won the lottery when they found that tall quite handsome kind mm. considerate thoughtful young man. They struck gold. Who also has a little bit of a comic tinge in himself as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Like He's clever. He's witty. Sometimes I think he carries in a little bit of like Cousin Greg energy, you know, <laughs> the guy from Succession. They're both very tall men, yeah. both very handsome men, but they're also thrust into environments which are completely baffling and unfamiliar and told to kind of sink or swim. You know what I find really interesting has been the critical response to this show, Beverly. So if you look at this show on like Rotten Tomatoes, the critical response has actually been quite lukewarm. Really? Whereas the audience response is basically 100%. I'm going to call it the Super Mario Brothers effect again. <laughs> exactly. We're very team Super Mario Brothers. We're on the side of the audience. We're very, very team jury duty. Because what I think is beautiful about this show is, yes, the premise is essentially 
at its base level, a very, very elaborate, candid camera, you could Mm -hmm. say. But what I find really beautiful about it is what you're talking about, which is Ronald himself is so decent. He is kind of put through trials and tests to see how a real-life person is going to react to staged, elaborate events and incidents, like someone hurting themselves, someone doing a giant poo in the toilet. And he keeps passing. And what I love about this is, think of America in 2023, an incredibly fractious society where people don't necessarily think the best of each other, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you think of each other as the other. You think of each other as either red or blue, as conservative or progressive. Whereas something like Jury Duty actually pulls you together and asks you to cooperate. And this is what the show is asking of Ronald and he passes. And when you get to the final episode, again, spoiler, when it is revealed to him what is going on, the way that the judge frames the whole thing, which is saying, actually, you've kind of been put on trial yourself. Mm. That is such a beautiful moment. I don't know what's going inside, but he just maintains his composure. While reality is melting around him. (laughs) We're so in the moment with Ronald when that happens. He does get $100,000 for mm. his troubles. I think they probably could have given him a little bit more than Amazon money. More. I, I feel <laughs> yeah, like yeah, he could sure. have. <laughs> but such interesting details, again, like if you don't want to know, sorry, we have given the spoiler, but even the producers talk about how Ronald was so engaged in the trial, they were often having to scramble to come up with details to feedback because on top mm. of everything else, he actually was a very good jury member. All of the lawyers and the judge in the trial are actually former lawyers yeah, who are also they actors. have a legal background, it's incredible. which I find remarkable. And when you do get to the final episode, it is so satisfying to see how the show was made because as someone who works in TV myself, a lot of the questions I had was, how are they making this? How are they scripting it? How are these actors rehearsing for something that actually requires a lot of naturalistic improvisation? How are they timing something falling over or a turd arriving in a toilet, (laughs) for instance. And the beautiful coming together of the production is a really satisfying thing to see. The fact that they were like, okay, we need to pause. We need the actors actually to come together to rehearse something for Ronald that's actually going to be quite hard to pull off. We need to tell Ronald this. Okay, everyone on set. It's remarkable. Yeah, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure script. I kind of think that'd be incredibly fun, but also stressful. The show in itself is stressful in some ways. It's like, are the characters going to break? Is Ronald going to discover what's actually happening? How is he going to react? But I also feel like it's stressful to the point where the stakes are kind of silly and the outcome is so wholesome that I actually felt like this show was a bit of a hug in an unsentimental way. I didn't feel like it was syrupy. I just thought it was a pure delight. Which is a really tricky needle to thread, I think, because you're taking what is ostensibly a very unethical situation (laughs) and everybody is feeling good about it (laughs) by the end. But I also appreciated that it wasn't just the opening of the door of reality and just leaving him to his own devices. The producers, the writers had obviously scripted, this is what we feel is going to be best practice to show Ronald that he was fooled the entire time while giving him a really tight, reassuring hug every step of the way and telling him how much of a hero he is. And I think that's really beautiful. Jury Duty, you can check it out. It's on Amazon Prime. Oh my God, is someone at the door on our show? How fun. Let's see who it is. Danny, Danny Lavery, thank you so much for stopping everything to chat with us all the way from New York. It's so fabulous to be here. Danny, welcome. Now, you are in New York City today, but not long from now, you're going to be here in Australia with us. We're going to see you at the Sydney Writers' Festival. All of that is true. (laughs) Your podcast is called Big Mood, Little Mood. Our show is called Stop Everything. We're going to join forces. Recording together a collab with a live audience at the Five in Parramatta, that's spelled P-H-I-V-E, but it's pronounced Five, at 6.30pm on Wednesday the 24th of May. So we're going to put an event link in the show notes. It is free, but you do have to book tickets. So get a group together. Come join us because, you know, on this show, I like feelings. Danny's show is 
big mood, little mood. Uh, ben is a little bit dead inside, but we're mm, going to try. A husk. He's just a dried out husk. We all know this. But the rest of us are going to have really big feelings. Big mood, little mood is an advice show. For those not in the know, can you just describe a little bit more about what it's about? It's a spinoff of the former Dear Prudence podcast. So it started as an advice column show where people would write in in advance and ask their questions. And I would choose them and read them aloud on the air. And usually we try to balance one or two of them that are weightier issues and then one or two that are ideally a little bit on the smaller scale of things. Like today I had to answer a question from somebody who was confused about whether or not she should keep in touch with her brother's really troubled ex and then somebody else who was having a wedding and their uncle eats meat and they were worried he might object to a vegan menu. So it was nice to sort of bounce back and forth between bigger and smaller feelings and moods. Mm. Well, Danny, you were such a reassuring and trusted source of advice. When Beverly and I heard you were coming to town, we just wanted to monopolize you and hold your hands while you're in the country and just cry silently while asking you about our problems. But we don't think that's fair. So we're going to join Good, powers. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to join Powers at the Sydney Writers' Festival to share your magnificent brain. But we're also going to be talking about pop culture and what's in our feeds. We're also going to be giving reader-listener letters and giving advice. So it's a combination of our two powers in this magnificent Radio Voltron. Radio Voltron, coining a new term. I like it. So, Danny, you're pretty prolific. Over the years, among all the things you do, you've got your Substack, the Chatner, you've got your books, Text from Jane Eyre, the Mary Spinster, something that may shock and discredit you. And you have carved out this space for yourself as a thoughtful purveyor of advice, first with your prudence, now on Big Mood, Little Mood. I also dabble a little bit in the advice game. On another show I host called Life Matters, we have this segment called The Too Hard Basket. On that segment, we have two people who come together, and we also have people who comment on Facebook. I'm just sort of like the shepherd of it all. What are some of your nuggets of wisdom about what good advice sounds like? I think usually I try to find common ground between what the letter writer's goals are and what I think the letter writer's goals ought to be. So, you know, if I think somebody's really off the beam, I'm willing to go out there and say, I think you should do a total 180 on this. But I think more often people are unlikely to completely change their approach to life because a stranger says that they should. So unless it's an issue of relative health and safety, I try to think, well, I know I would do something different in this situation or I might advise a close friend to do something different. But if this is your goal and I think it's a reasonable one, I'll try to help you achieve it. So looking for that balance between trying to guide someone in the way that I think would be best versus allowing for the possibility that what might make someone else very happy would not suit me and vice versa and trying to keep an open mind wherever possible. What? You're using empathy and putting yourself in other people's shoes? That sounds like a very decent thing to do. Danny, if people want to write in with a dilemma, how do they get in touch with Big Mood, Little Mood? So if people want to write in, they can go to slate.com slash podcasts slash Big Mood, Little Mood, and there's a hyphen that separates every element of Big Mood, Little Mood uh, in that last section. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. You can also email the letters to us in Australia at stopeverything at abc.net.au. We'll pool our resources. We'll share the love as we approach this podcast collaboration, Radio Voltron. Danny, thank you so much for stopping by. We're super excited for this show. We're going to see you next month and we promise not to monopolize your advice too much. We're going to share <laughs> it around. I'm really excited and looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Well, that was fun having a little bit of a visitor, hey? Yeah, I love a visitor. I mean, I like you as well, Beverly. I like to keep it fresh, make it a trio. (laughs) Why not? Please do come to see us at five in Parramatta. A big thank you to our producer, Sarah Mashman, our sound engineer, Tim Simons. Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Eora and Kulin Nations and on the land of the Moonina people from country around Nipaluna. Benjamin Law... I've sent you my pay ID details so you can send me that $25,000 for crypto, okay? Okay, Boovily, my <laughs> kidneys are ready. Let's go link arms, walk into the sunset, harvest advice, and block someone's toilet. <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.